Section six of volume one F of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of sixteen eighty eight. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jim Dennison. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of sixteen eighty eight by David Hume. Volume one F, section six, chapter sixty four, part two. The king of Denmark, seemingly ashamed of his conduct, concluded with Sir Gilbert Talbot, the English envoy, an offensive alliance against the states, and at the very same time his resident at the Hague, by his orders, concluded an offensive alliance against England. To this latter alliance he adhered, probably from jealousy of the increasing naval power of England and he seized and confiscated all the English ships in his harbors. This was a sensible check to the advantages which Charles had obtained over the Dutch. Not only a blow was given to the English commerce, the King of Denmark's naval force was also considerable, and threatened every moment a conjunction with the Hollanders. That prince stipulated to assist his ally with a fleet of thirty sail, and he received in return a yearly subsidy of one million five hundred thousand crowns, of which three hundred thousand were paid by France. The king endeavored to counterbalance these confederacies by acquiring new friends and allies. He had dispatched Sir Richard Fanshawe into Spain, who met with a very cold reception. That monarchy was sunk into a state of weakness, and was menaced with an invasion from France, yet could not any motive prevail with philip to enter into cordial friendship with england charles's alliance with portugal the detention of jamaica and tangiers the sale of dunkirk to the french all these offences sunk so deep in the mind of the spanish monarch that no motive of interest was sufficient to outweigh them the bishop of munster was the only ally that charles could acquire this prelate a man of restless enterprise and ambition had entertained a violent animosity against the states and he was easily engaged by the promise of subsidies from england to make an incursion on that republic with a tumultuary army of near twenty thousand men he invaded her territories and met with weak resistance the land forces of the states were as feeble and ill-governed as their fleets were gallant and formidable but after his committing great ravages in several of the provinces a stop was put to the progress of this warlike prelate he had not military skill sufficient to improve the advantages which fortune had put into his hands the king of france sent a body of six thousand men to oppose him subsidies were not regularly remitted him from england and many of his troops deserted for want of pay the elector of brandenburg threatened him with an invasion in his own state and on the whole he was glad to conclude a peace under the mediation of france on the first surmise of his intentions sir william temple was sent from london with money to fix him in his former alliance but found that he arrived too late the dutch encouraged by all these favorable circumstances continued resolute to exert themselves to the utmost in their own defence de ruyter their great admiral was arrived from his expedition to guinea their indian fleet was come home in safety their harbors were crowded with merchant ships faction at home was appeased the young prince of orange had put himself under the tuition of the states of holland and of de witt their pensionary who executed his trust with honor and fidelity 
and the animosity which the Hollanders entertained against the attack of the English, so unprovoked as they thought it, made them thirst for revenge, and hope for better success in their next enterprise. Such vigor was exerted in the common cause, that in order to man the fleet, all merchant ships were prohibited to sail, and even the fisheries were suspended. The English likewise continued in the same disposition, though another more grievous calamity had joined itself to that of war. The plague had broken out in London, and that with such violence as to cut off in a year near ninety thousand inhabitants. The king was obliged to summon the Parliament at Oxford. A good agreement still subsisted between the king and Parliament. They, on their part, unanimously voted him the supply demanded, twelve hundred and fifty thousand pounds, to be levied in two years by monthly assessments, and he, to gratify them, passed the five-mile act, which has given occasion to grievous and not unjust complaints. The church, under pretense of guarding monarchy against its inveterate enemies, persevered in the project of wreaking her own enmity against the nonconformists. It was enacted that no dissenting teacher, who took not the non-resistance oath above mentioned, should, except upon the road, come within five miles of any corporation or of any place where he had preached after the act of oblivion. The penalty was a fine of fifty pounds and six months' imprisonment. By ejecting the non-conforming clergy from their churches, and prohibiting all separate congregations, they had been rendered incapable of gaining any livelihood by their spiritual profession, and now, under color of removing them from places where their influence might be dangerous, an expedient was fallen upon to deprive them of all means of subsistence. Had not the spirit of the nation undergone a change, these violences were preludes to the most furious persecution. However prevalent the hierarchy, this law did not pass without opposition. Besides several peers, attached to the old Parliament party, Southampton himself, though Clarendon's great friend, expressed his disapprobation of these measures. But the church party, not discouraged with this opposition, introduced into the House of Commons a bill for imposing the oath of non-resistance on the whole nation. It was rejected only by three voices. The Parliament, after a short session, was prorogued. After France had declared war, England was evidently overmatched in force. Yet she possessed this advantage by her situation, that she lay between the fleets of her enemies, and might be able, by speedy and well-concerted operations, to prevent their junction. But such was the unhappy conduct of her commanders, or such the want of intelligence in her ministers, that this circumstance turned rather to her prejudice. Lewis had given orders to the Duke of Beaufort, his admiral, to sail from Toulon, and the French squadron under his command, consisting of above forty sail, was now commonly supposed to be entering the channel. The Dutch fleet, to the number of seventy-six sail, was at sea, under the command of de Ruyter and Tromp, in order to join him. The Duke of Albemarle and Prince Rupert commanded the English fleet, which exceeded not seventy-four sail. Albemarle, who, from his successes under the Protector, had too much learned to despise the enemy, proposed to detach Prince Rupert with twenty ships, in order to oppose the Duke of Beaufort. Sir George Askew, well acquainted with the bravery and conduct of de Ruyter, protested against the temerity of this resolution, but Albemarle's authority prevailed. 
the remainder of the English set sail to give battle to the Dutch, who, seeing the enemy advance quickly upon them, cut their cables and prepared for the combat. The battle that ensued is one of the most memorable that we read of in story, whether we consider its long duration or the desperate courage with which it was fought. Albemarle made here some atonement by his valor for the rashness of the attempt. No youth, animated by glory and ambitious hopes, could exert himself more than did this man, who was now in the decline of life, and who had reached the summit of honors. We shall not enter minutely into particulars. It will be sufficient to mention the chief events of each day's engagement. In the first day, Sir William Berkeley, vice-admiral, leading the van, fell into the thickest of the enemy, was overpowered, and his ship taken. He himself was found dead in his cabin, all covered with blood. The English had the weather-gauge of the enemy, but as the wind blew so hard that they could not use their lower tier, they derived but small advantage from this circumstance. The Dutch shot, however, fell chiefly on their sails and rigging, and few ships were sunk or much damaged. Chain-shot was at that time a new invention, commonly attributed to DeWitt. Sir John Harmon exerted himself extremely on this day. The Dutch Admiral, Everts, was killed in engaging him. Darkness parted the combatants. The second day the wind was somewhat fallen, and the combat became more steady and more terrible. The English now found that the greatest valor cannot compensate the superiority of numbers against an enemy who is well conducted and who is not defective in courage. De Ruyter and Van Tromp, rivals in glory and enemies from faction, exerted themselves in emulation of each other, and de Ruyter had the advantage of disengaging and saving his antagonist, who had been surrounded by the English and was in the most imminent danger. Sixteen fresh ships joined the Dutch fleet during the action, and the English were so shattered that their fighting ships were reduced to twenty-eight, and they found themselves obliged to retreat towards their own coast. The Dutch followed them, and were on the point of renewing the combat, when a calm, which came a little before night, prevented the engagement. Next morning the English were obliged to continue their retreat, and a proper disposition was made for that purpose. The shattered ships were ordered to stretch ahead, and sixteen of the most entire followed them in good order, and kept the enemy in awe. Albemarle himself closed the rear, and presented an undaunted countenance to his victorious foes. The Earl of Ossory, son of Ormond, a gallant youth, who sought honor and experience in every action throughout Europe, was then on board the Admiral. Albemarle confessed to him his intention rather to blow up his ship and perish gloriously than yield to the enemy. Ossory applauded this desperate resolution. About two o'clock the Dutch had come up with their enemy and were ready to renew the fight, when a new fleet was descried from the south, crowding all their sail to reach the scene of action. The Dutch flattered themselves that Beaufort was arrived to cut off the retreat of the vanquished, the English hoped that Prince Rupert had come to turn the scale of action. Albemarle, who had received intelligence of the prince's approach, bent his course towards him. Unhappily, Sir George Askew, in a ship of a hundred guns, the largest in the fleet, stuck on the Galloper Sands, and could receive no assistance from his friends, who were hastening to join the reinforcement. He could not even reap the consolation of perishing with honor and revenging his death on his enemies. They were preparing fire-ships to attack him, and he was obliged to strike. The English sailors, seeing the necessity, 
with the utmost indignation, surrendered themselves prisoners. Albemarle and Prince Rupert were now determined to face the enemy, and next morning the battle began afresh, with more equal force than ever, and with equal valor. After long cannonading, the fleets came to a close combat, which was continued with great violence, till parted by a mist. The English retired first into their harbors. Though the English, by their obstinate courage, reaped the chief honor in this engagement, it is somewhat uncertain who obtained the victory. The Hollanders took a few ships, and having some appearances of advantage, expressed their satisfaction by all the signs of triumph and rejoicing. But as the English fleet was repaired in a little time, and put to sea more formidable than ever, together with many of those ships which the Dutch had boasted to have burned or destroyed, all Europe saw that those two brave nations were engaged in a contest which was not likely, on either side, to prove decisive. It was in conjunction alone of the French that could give a decisive superiority to the Dutch. In order to facilitate this conjunction, de Ruyter, having repaired his fleet, posted himself at the mouth of the Thames. The English, under Prince Rupert and Albemarle, were not long in coming to the attack. The numbers of each fleet amounted to about eighty sail, and the valor and experience of the commanders, as well as of the seamen, rendered the engagement fierce and obstinate. Sir Thomas Allen, who commanded the white squadron of the English, attacked the Dutch van, which he entirely routed, and he killed three admirals who commanded it. Van Tromp engaged Sir Jeremy Smith, and during the heat of action he was separated from de Ruyter and the main body, whether by accident or design was never certainly known. De Ruyter, with conduct and valor, maintained the combat against the main body of the English, and though overpowered by numbers, kept his station till night ended the engagement. Next day, finding the Dutch fleet scattered and discouraged, his high spirit submitted to a retreat, which he had conducted with such skill as to render it equally honorable to himself as the greatest victory. Full of indignation, however, at yielding the superiority to the enemy, he frequently exclaimed, My God, what a wretch I am! Among so many thousand bullets is there not one to put an end to my miserable life? One De Witt, his son-in-law, who stood near, exhorted him, since he sought death, to turn upon the English, and render his life a dear purchase to the victors. But De Ruyter esteemed it more worthy a brave man to persevere to the uttermost, and as long as possible to render service to his country. All that night and next day the English pressed upon the rear of the Dutch, and it was chiefly by redoubled efforts of De Ruyter that the latter saved themselves in their harbors. The loss sustained by the Hollanders in this action was not very considerable, but as violent animosities had broken out between the two admirals, who engaged all the officers on one side or other, the consternation which took place was great among the provinces. Tromp's commission was at last taken from him, but though several captains had misbehaved, they were so effectually protected by their friends in the magistracy of the towns that most of them escaped punishment and many were still continued in their commands. The English now rode incontestable masters of the sea, and insulted the Dutch in their harbors. A detachment under Holmes was sent into the road of Vlie, and burned a hundred and forty merchantmen, two men of war, together with Branderus, a large and rich village on the coast. The Dutch merchants, who lost by this enterprise, uniting themselves to the Orange faction, exclaimed against an administration which, they pretended, 
had brought such disgrace and ruin on their country none but the firm and intrepid mind of de witt could have supported itself under such a complication of calamities the king of france apprehensive that the dutch would sink under their misfortunes at least that de witt his friend might be dispossessed of the administration hastened the advance of the duke of beaufort the dutch fleet likewise was again equipped and under the command of de ruyter cruised near the straits of dover prince rupert with the english navy now stronger than ever came full sail upon them the dutch admiral thought proper to decline the combat and retired into st john's road near boulogne here he sheltered himself both from the english and from a furious storm which arose prince rupert too was obliged to retire to st helens where he stayed some time in order to repair the damages which he had sustained meanwhile the duke of beaufort proceeded up the channel and passed the english fleet unperceived but he did not find the dutch as he expected de ruyter had been seized with a fever many of the chief officers had fallen into sickness a contagious distemper was spread through the fleet and the states thought it necessary to recall them into their harbors before the enemy should be refitted the french king anxious for his navy which with so much care and industry he had so lately built dispatched orders to beaufort to make the best of his way to brest that admiral had again the good fortune to pass the english one ship alone the ruby fell into the hands of the enemy while the war continued without any decisive success on either side a calamity happened in london which threw the people into great consternation fire breaking out in a baker's house near the bridge spread itself on all sides with such rapidity that no efforts could extinguish it till it laid in ashes a considerable part of the city the inhabitants without being able to provide effectually for their relief were reduced to be spectators of their own ruin and were pursued from street to street by the flames which unexpectedly gathered round them three days and nights did the fire advance and it was only by the blowing up of houses that it was at last extinguished the king and duke used their utmost endeavors to stop the progress of the flames but all their industry was unsuccessful about four hundred streets and thirteen thousand houses were reduced to ashes the causes of this calamity were evident the narrow streets of london the houses built entirely of wood the dry season and a violent east wind which blew these were so many concurring circumstances which rendered it easy to assign the reason of the destruction that ensued but the people were not satisfied with this obvious account prompted by blind rage some ascribed the guilt to the republicans others to the catholics though it is not easy to conceive how the burning of london could serve the purposes of either party as the papists were the chief objects of public detestation the rumor which threw the guilt on them was more favorably received by the people no proof however or even presumption after the strictest inquiry by a committee of parliament ever appeared to authorize such a calumny yet in order to give countenance to the popular prejudice the inscription engraved by authority on the monument ascribed this calamity to that hated sect this clause was erased by order of king james when he came to the throne but after the revolution it was replaced so credulous as well as obstinate are the people in believing everything which flatters their prevailing passion the fire of london though at the time a great calamity has proved in the issue beneficial both to the city and the kingdom 
the city was rebuilt in a very little time and care was taken to make the streets wider and more regular than before a discretionary power was assumed by the king to regulate the distribution of the buildings and to forbid the use of lath and timber the materials of which the houses were formerly composed the necessity was so urgent and the occasion so extraordinary that no exceptions were taken at an exercise of authority which otherwise might have been deemed illegal had the king been enabled to carry his power still further and made the houses be rebuilt with perfect regularity and entirely upon one plan he had much contributed to the convenience as well as the embellishment of the city great advantages however have resulted from the alterations though not carried to the full length london became much more healthy after the fire the plague which used to break out with great fury twice or thrice every century and indeed was always lurking in some corner or other of the city has scarcely ever appeared since that calamity end of section six chapter sixty four part two recording by jim dennison j i m d e n i s o n dot i can voice dot com